he would love to move closer for a better shot. But it's the dry brush in front of his bare feet that he knows would give him away. So far, his enemy has no idea he's there. He's, he's gotten behind him. For a young warrior, this will test his skills. But he's up for it. So he takes the ammo in his right hand. He centers in and he does what he's been trained. He slows his breathing. And from this distance, like a, a twitch mechanism, his entire body goes into this reflex. And his shot goes right over the prey's head. And yet it doesn't move. You know how sometimes lizards do that? They just do. And on this big boulder, one of the biggest lizards he's ever seen, it just does. And so the young warrior takes another rock from his left hand, puts it into his right, and this time he fires it a little bit more quickly, slightly off balance. It bounces off the boulder behind it. He will tell his friends he hit him in the tail, but you and I know I don't even think he got close. And the lizard goes up and over the rock and down the ledge. Our eight-year-old now has to run. He wants to know, does he get another shot on this? And he gets over the big boulders just outside of town and looks down the ledge. He freezes in terror. What, what seems like almost a lifetime without him being able to breathe and move because they're in the valley. By the thousands, no, by the, by the tens of thousands, they are starting to march and approach. Every man carrying his own form of crude weaponry, some with bows, some with spears, some with that little chain and that spiky bowling ball, some riding horses, some on camels. And the entire valley is now crawling with him in his direction. His left hand just slightly opens. The three other rocks he had and ammunition built up trickle out under the boulder in front of him, and that, that awakens his consciousness. And he turns and he runs. This time he doesn't look for the path. He doesn't look for the beaten down game trail. This time he makes a straight line and the camera follows his bare little footsteps as the eight-year-old just flies right through the thickets and right through the thorns as if he doesn't feel pain or as if, as if something's on the line where today he can't. By the time our young man reaches the city gates, everything within his little lungs fills up and explodes. And the townspeople at the city gate realize the fear on this young man's face. This isn't a cry of wolf. It's a second of shock, followed by a frenzy of activity. It's, a, it's like someone kicked over an ant mound. And the entire city is scurrying in different directions. Moms are screaming for names of kids. People are yelling out in the fields for men to come back in. Everyone's grabbing what they had to sell and barter with and running back toward homes. And one door after another, as soon as everyone's inside, gets locked and shut. Men come running back from the field and go in the house, put the big wooden door shut, and everything they have inside is stacked against it. To the furthest corner of every house, the same scene is played out. And yet... <laughs> And yet saying furthest corner is almost a joke. They're what, 10 feet, 12 feet by about nine feet. They're little rock homes, mudded together as best as they can. And their moms will sit and gather the young. Dad will sit in front of them, eyeing the door. And every man asking the same question. When the army kicks it in, what do they do? You have to stand and fight for your woman and children. But fighting against an army is certain death. And if you die, what happens to your women and children? 
And pretty soon it's the sound of an oncoming tornado, the sound of tens of thousands marching in battle gear, wagons carrying the gears of war coming through the city streets. Every little rock and adobe roof is starting to shake. Little dust particles and mud are falling on the inside. Children are starting to cry. Moms are trying to hush them, but yet the sound outside has to overwhelm a child's cry. And it seems like an eternity, but it only lasts about 20 to 30 minutes before the sound starts to dissipate and moves on. On this day, the army doesn't stop. On this day, they're not concerned about what's inside each door. They're on a mission. And it's the bravest of souls are the first to move the little small table, the furniture, and to crack the door open and stand out into the daylight. Oh, everything loose in town has been taken. But door after door opens, nods are given, and you realize families are intact. The great Babylonian army has moved on. It's got a date, a dot on the map that it's trying to get to. It's got a bigger purpose than your town. And yet village after village after village is going through the exact same scenario. They all knew it was coming. They just didn't know when and how. The date is 605 BC. The destination is Carchemish. I know you didn't come to Hume Lake to learn world history. So what I'm about to take you through is not world history. It's your history. It's your story. It's where we pick up the film. It's why we have a book in our hand. It's why we're going to learn from four teenagers in 66 years in the next few days. So it looks sort of like this, where somewhere that European line comes down and makes that big brick of a thing, and then it comes out and you've got that little woman's boot with the high heel because Italy's all into fashion. And then you have another area like there, like Greece, and then this is like Turkey, and then you have the Middle East, and then you come down here, and then you have Africa comes up but doesn't quite touch, and then it goes down. And this is kind of what the Mediterranean Sea looks like. Actually, that's the best I think I've ever drawn it. <laughs> but I say that because I think I've drawn it like three times in my life. And here you have a Nile River from great Egypt that flows. And here you have a Dead Sea that comes. And then you have the Gulf of Arabia down there. And you have the Middle East. And our entire story is going to take place on this tiny little sliver of land simply right there. You see, just above it is a dot simply called Carchemish. The reason why this is where we start in 605 B.C. is because the world heavyweight title is about to be handed over. Babylon has been building. They've got the greatest city in the world and probably the oldest city in the world. It goes all the way back to the first book in the Bible, Genesis, where someone built a tower of Babel. And Babylon has been around as one of the most ancient cities on earth. But they've amassed great power. And the two world powers are starting to slip. So Babylon, which owns almost everything this way in the Middle East, decides to move his army up to here. Because Nineveh used to be the capital of Assyria. But Assyria has been losing power in the last few decades Babylon kicked them out of their capital, and now they've set up in Carchemish. Egypt down here is worried. Egypt used to be a world power. Easter, Egypt used to own the dominion of the world, but it's slipping out of their hands. And seeing that Assyria needs help, they decide we need to make a pact, because if Babylon takes Assyria, 
They'll be watching right through our front door. And so Egypt, together with Assyria, bring their forces. Babylon comes, and the big three meet right there. And Babylon wastes Syria so bad they're never heard from again as a world economic empire of any side. They chase Egypt all the way back down to its borders. Egypt can stay in Africa. We'll let you have your land where it is still today. But now Babylon owns, for all intents and purposes, the known world. And as Babylon beats Assyria and chases Egypt home, this little sliver of land is called Israel. It's only about 120 miles long about 40 miles wide. It's about the size from San Diego to Los Angeles, the the best part of California, and that's about all it is. The two of us, we're good, we're good. No, you were a little late. And so, it's about 120 miles long by about 40 miles wide. It's a little podunk dot on the land, but it's there for a purpose and a reason. And we're gonna hear the story of four teenagers, four teenagers that are just innocent pawns, four teenagers that just happen to get caught up in the great battle of time, four teenagers that are gonna step out of your history books. And one of them's gonna write after 66 years of living in captivity, this is how we survived. Let me tell you about my friends. Let me tell you about our freshman year at the university and a choice that we decided to make when we were about 17 years old. Let me tell you how we got through this and not just survived it. Let me tell you how we thrived. And at the end of 66 years living under Babylonian rule, a kid named Danny is going to write a book. By the time he writes the book, he's older, so he goes by Daniel. But growing up, he was just Danny. But you got to ask yourself, who cares? (laughs) Who cares what four teenagers did back in 605 B.C.? Who cares about a little dot of land out here? And to care, you have to back up a little bit before that and go into, well, who created this? And maybe we should start there. Maybe we should go back to the very beginning and ask, how did Israel get there? Who are they? So let's back it up. How did this happen? Page one of the Bible will agree with science 100%. Everything you know came from a big bang. Everything you experienced came from one point in time. Our galaxies today are still extending outward from a specific point in time. There was an origin that created not just our galaxy, but the millions of galaxies our size. I know our little Plato brains cannot comprehend the size and expanse of that, but something in one point in time, a big bang, created everything. And with some sort of intentionality and design that you and I sit in a chapel today, ferociously spinning around a giant big ball of fire, never to move closer, never to move further away, never to speed up and never to slow down. But somehow, without a battery, for our lives in the history of humanity to be on a ball of mud and rock and water and lava that spins and hurls in rotation around this fireball that gives us seasons. Unless you're in San Diego, then you only have one season, but it's the best of seasons, so you don't really care. And it gives us seasons. And science says that's exactly how it happened. The only place the Bible disagrees with science is not even a disagreement. It just goes one step further that science can't 
and it explains the Big Bang. The Big Bang was a voice of a creator that spoke things into being. Science says we can't explain the Big Bang, but it had to be a vast explosion of absolute nothingness. Now you have to comprehend both of those. Both of those are gonna take some enormous steps of faith for you, but they're the only two reasons why this is here and why you are there. Either an explosion in a volume of nothingness, no matter, no cells, no protons, no electrons, because they had to exist somewhere, but absolute nothingness exploded our planet, our lives, our science, our infrastructure, and the galaxies around us. Or that explosion of nothingness was a voice of a creator behind creation. There's an artist behind the artistry in this life. There is a designer behind the intricate designs of our planet. You have to come to that choice. This book says in page one that God spoke the Big Bang into being and all things developed and were created. It then says on page one and two, you were created for a purpose. You're not a mistake. You're not an accident. I don't care how you thought or how you were told you got here. I was 22 years old before I found out my parents' anniversary is five months after my birthday. What the? I know, you're like, it took you 22 years. I never said I was smart or fast, but I figured it out. I figured it out. But I'm not a mistake. There's a purpose in life. And page one and two, your purpose to have amazing relationships, loving relationships with each other, and an amazing relationship with this creator. Page one and two. And page three says, guess what? You don't have it. <laughs> Instead, you got a life that's filled with hurt and pain and insecurities and damage that's been done. Why? Because on page three, God said, I'm going to give you a choice. You have to have free will. You have to. Because our God's number one character is he's a God of love. And love is a choice. It is not a feeling. It is not an emotion. It is a choice. And for us to experience love, then you have to have, by definition, a choice to not experience love. For us to experience protection, you have to have a choice to not protect. For us to experience healthy relationship, there has to be a choice to not have healthy relationship. And on page three, free will and choice for the necessity of love and us to have it says, I have to allow a non and we live in those that have chosen a very non-loving world and a non-loving relationship. And someone promised your mom till death do us part. And what he meant was until something better came along. And like four teenagers just trying to live their life on the eastern Mediterranean seaboard, they're caught up in a major warfare. And they had nothing to do with it. And God said, because choices in this world, and there's so much hurt and evil and pain, I'm going to show myself to this world. Now, how does God show himself? Well, the rest of book one in the Bible, Genesis says, God decided to make a people group and build a relationship with that people group so that all the world can look and go, that's what it looks like to make the choice to be in love and relationship. But to do that, he's going to have to pick a nation. Whatever nation he picks, they're going to think that they're awesome because God picked them. So instead, he started his own nation. Well, whoever you start your nation with, they're going to think they're awesome. So God looked for the biggest loser on earth. His name was Abraham. 
Abraham is old, he's about to die, he doesn't have any family, no kids, he lives in the backwood hillbilly country beyond Babylon, current day Baghdad, and he's an idol-worshiping family guy. And God said, if I make him into a nation, people are going to go, oh, God, and he's all, that's right. <laughs> so he came to old Abe and said, if you follow me, I'm going to take you to a land. And if you follow me and leave everything you know, I'll make you into a great nation. And Abe's like, you should have talked to me 60 years ago. He's like, no, wrinkly old dude, it's you. And this guy, Abraham, left the hill country about down in this area off the Euphrates. And God brought him to this little piece of land right here. And Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob is also called Israel. Israel had 12 boys. It's 12 tribes of Israel, and they created this little piece of land. And why did God do that? People, what I'm showing you is history. It's not fiction. It's not fable. Because if there is one piece of ground today that is more sought after and more fought over in the world, it is right here. Why? Because something happened there. The entire Islamic faith, the entire Muslim world, and everyone that has the Bible as their source, the entire Christian faith and world, all comes down to the same first books in the Bible. There is a God, there's an Abraham, there's an Isaac, there's a Jacob. And the Muslim world will split at that point and write the Quran 500 years after Jesus and say, ah, we've got a different story to tell. And the Christian world will stay with the story here. Why this piece of land? Why now? Are we going back 2,600 years later and spending a week to talk about teenagers here? Because this is ground zero. For those of you that are Christians, you know at the end of the book, Jesus comes and he's died on the cross and he raised again. That's the way of Christmas. That's the way of Easter. Even if you don't believe it, you can't go to school on those days. And though we're like, why didn't God show up here? Why didn't Jesus come way back here? Why didn't Jesus come earlier? Why'd you have to wait all that time? Because God didn't want just Israel to know his love and his son. God wanted the world. And the first time the world has an, a literature, an economic, a language, and trade routes is under what empire? Starts with R, ends in Omen. That's right, Roman. You guys are dang good. It's the Roman Empire. In fact, they've got world dominion to a point where there's a little saying that says, all roads lead to why do all roads lead to Rome? Because the entire land of Europe now is dominated by the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire will also take over the entire northern bridge of Africa. The Roman Empire will always push into everything that we know as Middle East that they called Asia. Most shipping is all done then through the Mediterranean. Everything leads to this direction. Everything from Africa leads up to this direction. Everything from Europe leads to this direction. And everything from Asia leads to this direction. So, if you were smart enough to buy property 4,000 years before the Roman Empire, and you wanted the one place that the entire Roman Empire had to travel through, what piece of property would you buy? Starts with is, ends in rail. You would, but no one's smart enough to buy property 4,000 years before the Roman Empire. Unless there's a big bang that actually has thought, that actually has purpose, that actually has design. He goes, kids, you can't hold on to that property. I'll guide you. I'll take you through your ups and downs. It's called the Old Testament. I'll take you through an Egyptian empire. I'll take you through an Assyrian empire. And I will take you through a Babylonian empire. I will take you to the Medes and Persians. I will take you to the Greek Empire and Alexander the Great, and I will take you to the Roman Empire because at that point, at that time, I can pull off something 
right here in a little town called Bethlehem that will lead right here to a city called Jerusalem with a cross and an empty tomb. And I'll wait until the first century because at that point, all roads lead to and I will do something in the very epicenter of the trade route of the known world for the first time in history where everyone can hear and see. I'm a little fuzzy from that point on on my time and dates, but there's a little dude up here named Christopher Columbus that decides to get a boat and he sails this way and he lands on some big rock over here on another piece of land and then he comes over here and he founds a place called Hume Lake and there's a big chapel right there. And this big chapel in Hume Lake, we all sit around and we got something to talk about for a week and your staff decided, well, what do we talk about back here? And your leadership decided to say, why don't we talk about fact, not fiction? Why don't we talk not about world history, but your history? What if we look at their story only to find your story? And what if we start with four teenagers in a cafeteria? who have every right to say, forget God. He doesn't show up. Look at the crap I've had to deal with. And you're going to tell me there's a loving God? Fat chance. And it's in Daniel, chapter 1, verse 1. It is their story because it's your story. If you got a Bible, turn to the first or second page. It has a list of books and what page number they're on. Find what page number Daniel is on. We're only covering a couple verses. This is just an intro to what I'm going to teach tonight and the rest of the week with you until you vote me off the island. <laughs> Daniel 1, verse 1. Now in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and he put in the treasure house of his God. <laughs> Old Nebuchadnezzar is not going to be king right now of Babylon. He's soon to be after this battle, but his dad is Nebuchadnezzar. He just leads the army. And because he has kicked butt up here in Carchemish, because he's run the Assyrians off the page of history as we know it, and because he's pushed Egypt all the way down, now he has to return back home. But Babylon wants you to know we own you. Babylon wants you to know we are world power. We may go back home, but we don't want you in a few months to go, hey, we're free. We can do it our way. So how do you do that? If Israel is right here and Babylon is back here and they're 500 miles away, how do you rule a people 500 miles away? Well, first of all, you diminish them. First of all, you let them know, whatever you used to believe in sucks. What did you believe in, Israel? Well, there are people that claim there's one God, one true God, one creator God. Well, then let's go ransack their temple. Let's go take all the articles out of their temple. Let's go take their little gold showbread, and let's take their candelabras, and let's take their bowls, and let's take their wash basins. Let's take everything in their church and take it back to Babylon and put it in our church. Why? Just to let them know our God kicked your God's butt. 
Just if you ever want to pray to God, what God are you praying to? The one that let you down? What God are you praying to? The one that allowed your parents to have a divorce? What God are you praying to? The one that you prayed to for cancer just to realize that cells multiply? Your God sucks, and he hasn't come through, and I'll prove it. The world is winning, and where's your God? It's laughable. It's laughable. We take everything from your temple and everything that you held dear, and we showed you the world wins and you lose. So who are you going to pray to? And, and Israel is wasted. <laughs> and it's because we don't understand the context that these aren't individual books that this isn't a book on what we have to do to learn about God or get to God, but this is a book of what God has done to get to us. And we forget that we only have to back up just a couple pages. And the guy named Jeremiah, that was a prophet. Now, prophet sounds like a big churchy word. We picture guys with pointy hats and a staff that can do cool stuff. But a prophet is just one who speaks on behalf of someone else. My oldest daughter's name is Selah. And when the kids were smaller, I'd tell Selah, hey, go tell your brother and sister, dinner's ready. Go tell them to wash their hands. And Selah would walk into the TV room. And my daughter would walk in and say, I am the prophet of Chris. I speak on his behalf. Dinner is ready, and thou shalt wash thy hands. And then my other two minions have a choice. Do we listen to prophet Selah? Or do we decide to keep watching TV? Now, they have no fear in Prophet Selah because she's just a big sister. And the little guy's not that little anymore. And he can kind of take big sister if he wanted to. And she's got a kind heart and she's a peace loving and she's an Enneagram one. So she wouldn't fight even if she had to. So they decided to dismiss the prophet. And so I sit down and go, where are my minions? And Selah comes to the table and he goes, Father, it is just I that listen to your will. <laughs> and I say, really? And I move myself from the table of plenty that I have provided, and I go in the TV room. And with all the kind and compassion I have, I kick open the door. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> well, that's right. And I come back to the table where two have fear and trembling, and one has a head of shame because she has failed to be the prophet that I desire. And this is what the Old Testament is about. <laughs> it is a God that says, listen, I love you. I'm providing for you. I'm giving you everything. Just listen to what I have to say. And people go, what? <laughs> And Jeremiah has to be that prophet. And Jeremiah, just a couple books before Danny writes his, in chapter 25, says, The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah, that's Israel, in the fourth year of Jehoiakim. 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 Oh, that's right, he's the king of Israel. And son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And Jeremiah the prophet said to all the people of Judah and to all those living in Jerusalem, for 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Amnon, king of Judah, until this very day, the word of the Lord has come to me. I have spoken to you again and again and again, but you never listen. <laughs> and the Lord sent all of his servants, the prophets. It's not just me. 
You got the word of God. You got the voice of so many people of God. They came to you again and again. And you still don't listen and you don't pay any attention. They said, turn now, each of you. Don't go to your evil ways and your evil practices. And you can stay in the land that the Lord gave you. And he'll provide for you. And he'll give you safety and protection forever and ever. Do not follow other gods. Don't serve or worship them. Don't provoke me to anger and what your hands have made. And I will not harm you. But you don't listen. And you provoked me. With what your hands have made, says the Lord, and you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty now is saying this. Because you have not listened to my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, declares the Lord, and I will bring them against the land and its inhabitants and against all the surrounding nations. I will completely destroy them and make them an object of horror and of scorn and an everlasting ruin. I will banish from the sounds of I will banish the voices, I will banish them from the sounds of joy and the gladness, the voices of the bride and groom, the sounds of millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. Dad says, Look, I've given you time and time and time and time. And then I told Jeremiah, remember, it's a little piece of land. It's only 120 miles by 40. A traveling prophet can get there pretty quickly. For 23 years, he told you, stop doing things your way. God will provide for you, and he'll protect you. For 23 years, he says, I've been telling you this. Just wash your hands. There's a great table. Just wash your hands. There's a great table. Just wash your hands. There's a great table. And you guys just kept watching TV. Guess what? Dad's taking the TV away. <laughs> He's taking the land away for 70 years. And God called the shot. Not only did he buy land 4,000 years before Rome was going to need it and it's going to be the epicenter of the world, he says, I'm going to allow Babylon to win Carchemish. I'm going to allow them to come through and I'm going to allow them to own this place for 70 years. Why just 70 years? He goes, because I got a plan called Bethlehem. It's just 600 years early. <laughs> well, I don't, I don't know if I like this God. People, it's a big word. It's called sovereignty. God's sovereign. He knows all things. He's behind all things. He is before all things. He is in charge of who's in charge. Even the evil that we're about to see in Nebuchadnezzar. It's God saying, I have a plan. You can choose to be part of it or not. But you're not stopping my plan. I'm sovereign. You're not changing God's plan. Are you just a part of it or not? And sometimes a loving dad has to put a stop to things. When we're teaching my middle child, Karis, by the way, she's a lifeguard up here. Find out who Karis is and give her a wonderful time. Um, when I'm teaching her how to ride a bike and she's got those little wheels on it, and mom and I are walking behind her and we're going down her neighborhood and she's on the sidewalk. But the sidewalk comes to the little driveways and the driveways have a slant. And sometimes she gets going fast because she's a daredevil. Karis doesn't have brakes on anything in life. And sometimes she gets going quick and sometimes she gets a little farther ahead. And there was a time when she went across that driveway and because of her speed and being at the ripe old age of five and pedaling and her little helmet that was wobbling, the slope of that driveway took her off the sidewalk right into the street. Now, dad understands life and the complexities of it far more than my child. And dad understands what's going to happen with a five-year-old on a training bike and an SUV at 20 miles an hour. And even though this old chubby body doesn't have a lot left in it, 
what is in it will take 20 giant steps and throw my left hand as hard as I can up against her and her bike. And I will send her flying. And she will hit part of the driveway and roll into the grass and she will scream. And she can wonder why dad is cruel. And maybe I can, maybe I can't explain it to a five-year-old. But what she might not understand is another six feet and I think I lose you. And honey, I'm so sorry, but I will throw you down and rock you if that's the only choice I have of not losing you. Because dad is sovereign and dad is good. And if it causes you pain to awaken you to the type of life you can have with dad, I will cause you pain. And at times I will kill your fun. It's a Saturday morning where we walk down to the kitchen and the two oldest daughters have a brilliant idea that they're gonna make toast. And they can do that. But the brilliant idea was getting their little brother, about two and a half at the time, to open the drawers, because childproof locks aren't really childproof, and he can step up and sit on the cabinet. Now, he's a genius as a toddler, and he's seeing the toaster work, and he realizes if we put butter in the toaster, it can melt while it's toasting. Why wait for the toast to come out? So he has taken a metal knife with a... Don't, don't you dare get ahead of me ever again. He has taken a metal knife with butter, and he's trying to figure out how to get in the toaster. And down below are his two raving fans. And I come around the corner just in time to see the entire scene. And, and with everything I am. No! And they all do that. And he instantly, with the knife in his hand, and I run and I grab him away from that toaster. Now you can look at me and say, I am so glad I did not have a father like you. You are taking all the fun out of breakfast. You've killed all the joy in the house. Why can't you let your kids just play together and do what they want? And maybe at that time, my vast knowledge and wisdom outranked a two-and-a-half-year-old and a metal knife and a toaster. And I realized what is brilliant to you may just end you. <laughs> and you don't understand that. And you don't fathom that. But in my sovereignty, I will stand in the way of that happening. There will be a day and an age where they're not cute two and a half years anymore and they can choose their own path, their own life. They have free will. So for the rest of this series, you can drive through California and see all those with really long hair and long beards and you can tell yourself, that's proof there are no barbers in our country. <laughs> You can look at the amount of broken vehicles in driveways or in wrecking yards and say, that's proof there's no mechanics in our country. You can look at those that are sick and realize that's proof there's no doctors. You can look at the broken marriages and relationships of this world and say, that's proof there's no love. 
And you can look at the evil and the hurt and pain of this world and say that's proof there's no God. Or you can realize some people choose not to have a barber. Some people can't or won't go to a doctor. Some people can't afford or don't want to get that car fixed. Some people chose their own relationship, not the way it was supposed to be made. And God said, this world is going to be hell because for 23 years you've told me you don't want heaven. So I'll let you have your choice. But don't say there's no barbers. You're just going your own way. And in this group, the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring in some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed and quick to understand and qualified to serve in his palace. Because not only will we let you know there is no God, look at the world, there's no God of love. Where God's word said he wants to love and protect, you've chosen not to walk with him. I'm sorry your mom or dad chose not to walk with him. And you carry the effects. But here's Babylon. It's all about your body. It's all about how good you look. It's all about your youthfulness. It's all about your platform and what you have to offer. That's Babylon. And let's bring some of those back home. So if your parents ever decide to revolt 500 miles away, we have your kids. We own the world. And in the words of one of my favorite theologians, the incredible Hulk, <laughs> you have a puny God. You have a God in love and justice? How's that working out for you? Or maybe we forgot to walk with the God of love and justice. And he gives us free will. And we live in a world where we are now the exiles. We are the ones who have been exited. We live in a world where this is not our home. And we're going to read four teenagers who wrote a book and said, let us tell you how we made a difference in our cafeteria. So, Father, from this moment on, may you take us into history his story, your story. May we understand because there's hurt and pain and brokenness in the world, it doesn't mean you don't exist. It means we have a world that wants to live as if you don't exist and you will allow it. May this week we be awakened to a creator that has given us purpose and design and intentionality. May we read their story simply to find our story and our purpose with you. In Jesus' name, amen.